right y'all welcome back I'm gonna make this quick this is the courtroom scenes coming up these are very important scenes but they do have a lot of racial terms in it so if you don't want to listen turn me off alright other than that welcome to the reading uh, we're gonna start on chapter 16 <laughs> Chapter 16 Jim heard me. He thrust his head around the connecting door. As he came to my bed, Atticus's light flashed on. We stayed where we were till it went off. We heard him turn over and waited till he was still again. Jim took me into his room and put me in bed beside him. Try and go to sleep, he said. It'll all be over tomorrow, maybe. We come in quietly as to not wake Auntie. Atticus killed the engine in the driveway and coasted in the, in the car house. We went in the back door in our rooms without a word. I was very tired and drifting off to sleep when the memory of Atticus calmly folding his newspaper and pushing back his hat became Atticus standing in the middle of an empty waiting street pushing up his glasses full meaning of the night's events hit me and I began crying. Jim was awfully nice about it. For once he didn't remind me that people nearly nine years old didn't do things like that. Everybody's appetite was delicate the morning. Except for Jim's, he ate three, with three eggs. Atticus watched him in frank admiration. And Alexandra sipped coffee and radiated waves of disapproval. Children who slipped out in the middle of the night were disgraced to the family. Atticus said he was right glad that his disgraces had come along, but Annie said, Nonsense, Mr. Winterwood was there all the time. You know, funny thing about Braxton, said Atticus, he despises Negroes, won't have one near him. Local opinion held Mr. Underwood to be an intense, profane little man whose father, in a fray, fit of humor, christened Mr. Braxton Bragg a name Mr. Underwood had done his best to live down. Atticus said naming people after Confederate generals made them slow, steady drinkers. Calpurnia was serving Aunt Alexandria more coffee, and she shook her head at what I thought was a pleading, whiny look. You're still too little, she said. I'll tell you when you ain't. I said it might help my stomach. All right. She reached and got a teacup from the sideboard. She poured a tablespoon of coffee in it and filled the rest of the cup to the brim with milk. I thanked her by sticking out my tongue at it and looked up to catch Auntie's warning frown. She was frowning at Atticus. She waited till Calpurnia was in the kitchen and then said, Do not talk like that in front of them. Talk like that in front of whom, he asked. Like that in front of Calpurnia. You said Miss Braxton Underwood despises Negroes right in front of her. Well, I'm sure Cal knows it. Everybody in Maycom knows it. It was beginning to notice the subtle change in my father these days when it came when he talked with Aunt Alexandria. It was a quiet digging in, 
never quite outright irritation. There was a faint starchiness in his voice when he said it. Any, anything fit to say at this table is fit to say in front of Calpurnia. She knows what she means to this family. I do not think it is a good habit, Atticus. It encourages them. You know how they talk among themselves. Everything that happens in this town, out to the quarters before sundown. My father put down his knife. I don't know of any law that says they can't talk. Maybe if we didn't give them so much to talk about, they'd be quiet. Why don't you drink your scalp? Why don't you drink your coffee, Scout? I was playing with the spoon. I thought Mr. Cunningham was a friend of ours. You told me a long time ago he was. He still is. But last night he wanted to hurt you. Atticus placed his fork beside his knife, pushed his plate aside. Mr. Cunningham is basically a good man, he said. He just has his blind spots with the rest of us. Jim spoke. Don't call that a blind spot. He'd nearly killed you last night if you first went, went there. He might have hurt me a little, Atticus conceded. But son, you'll understand a little better when you're older. A mob is always made up of people, no matter what. Mr. Cunningham was part of a mob last night. He was still a man. Every mob in every little southern town is always made up of people. You know, don't say much for them, does it? I'll say not. So it took an eight-year-old child to bring them to their senses, didn't it? Said Atticus. That proves something. A gang of wild animals can be stopped simply because they're still human. Hmm, maybe we need a police force of children. You children last night made Walter Cunningham stand in my shoes for a minute. That was enough. Well, I hope Jim would understand a little better when he was older. I wouldn't. First day Walter comes back to his last, comes of things like this. Don't say I haven't told you. Atticus said he'd never say that. Pushed out his chair and got up. There's a day ahead, so excuse me, Jim. I do not want you and Scout downtown today, please. As Atticus departed, Dill came bounding down the hall into the dining room. It's all over town, he announced. All about how we held off a hundred people with our bare hands. And Alexandria stared at him in silence. It was not a hundred people, she said. And nobody held anybody off. It was just a nest of those Cunninghams. Drunk and disorderly. Oh, Auntie, that's just Dill's way, said Jim. He signaled us to follow him. You all stay in the yard today as we made our way to the front porch. It was Saturday. People from the south and of the county passed by our house, leisurely but steady stream. 
Mr. Delphos Raymond lurched on by in his thoroughbred. Don't see how he stays in the saddle, murmured Jim. Jim, how come you can how come you can stand to get drunk four in the morning? Wagon load of ladies rattled past us. They wore cotton sunbonnets. And dresses with long sleeves. A bearded man in a wool hat drove them. Yonders and masonites, Jim said. Dill, they don't have buttons. They live deep in the woods. Most of their trading done across the river and rarely come into Macon. Dill was interested. They all got blue eyes. Jim explained, and their men can't shave after they marry. Their wives like for tickle them with their beards. Mr. X. Phillips rode by on a mule and waved to us. He's a funny man, said Jim. X is his name, not his initial. He went to the courthouse one time and they made him ask what his name was. He said X. Phillips. The clerk asked him to spell it and he said X. They asked him again and he said X. And they kept asking him until he wrote X on a sheet of paper and held it up for everybody to see. They asked him where he got his name. He said that was the way his folks signed him up when he was born. As the county went by us, Jim gave Dill the histories and general attitudes of the more prominent figures. Mr. Tinsaw Jones voted straight prohibition ticket. Miss Emily Davis dipped snuff in private. Mr. Byron Walker he could play the violin. Miss Jake Slade was cutting his third set of teeth. A wagon load of unusually stern citizens appeared. They pointed to Miss Maudie Atkinson's yard, ablaze with summer flowers. Miss Maudie came out on her porch. There was an odd thing about Miss Maudie. On, on her porch, she was too far away for us to see her features clear, but we always catch her mood by the way she stood. She was now standing, arms akimbo, shoulders drooping a little, her head cocked to one side, her glasses winking in the sunlight. We knew she wore a grin of uttermost wickedness. The driver of the wagon slowed down by his mules, and in a shrill voice, woman called out, He that cometh in the vanity departeth in the darkness. Miss Maudie answered, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. I guess that was the fush, what the fush washers thought. The devil was quoting scripture for his very own purposes. As the, speeder, as the driver sped his mules, why they objected to Miss Maudie's yard was a, was a mystery, heightened in mind, because someone who spent all day at all daylight hours, Miss Maudie commanded scripture was forming. You going to court this morning, asked Jim. He's, we strolled by. I am not, she said. I ain't got no business with court this morning. Aren't you going down to watch, I still? I am not. It's more watching a poor devil on trial for his life. Look at all those folks, like a Roman carnival. They have to try in public, Miss Maudie. I said, wouldn't be right if they didn't. I'm 
quite aware of that, she said. Just because it's public don't mean I gotta go, do I? Miss Stephanie Crawford came by. She wore her hat and gloves. Mm-mm-mm, she said. Look at all those folks. You think William Jennings Bryan was speaking. And where are you going, Stephanie? inquired Miss Marty. To the Jitney Jungle. Miss Marty said she had never seen Miss Stephanie go to the Jitney Jungle in a hat in her whole life. Well, Miss Stephanie, I thought I might go down to the courthouse and see what Ag has been up to. Better be careful he doesn't hand you a subpoena. We asked Miss Marty to allocate. She said Miss Stephanie seemed to know too much about the case that she might be called on to testify. We held off until noon when Atticus came home for dinner and said they'd spent the morning picking jury. After dinner, we stopped by for Dill and went to town. It was a gala occasion. There was no room at the public kitchen rail for another animal, mule, or wagon parked underneath every available tree. The courthouse square was covered with picnic parties, sitting up on newspapers, washing down biscuit and syrup with warm milk and fruit jars. Some people were gnawing on cold chicken and fried pork chops. The more affluent chased their food with a drugstore Coca-Cola and a bulb-shaped soda glasses. Greasy-faced children popped up the whip through the crowd and babies lunched at their mother's breast. In the quiet corner of the square, the Negroes sat quietly, dining on sardines, crackers, and the more vivid colors of knee-high soda. Mr. Delphus Raymond sat with them. Jim, said Dill, he's drinking out of his sack. Miss Delphus Raymond seemed to be seemed to be so doing. Two yellow drugstore straws ran up to his mouth from the depths of the brown paper bag. Ain't seen anybody do that, murmured Dill. How does he keep what's how does he keep what's in it in it? Jim giggled. He's got a Coca-Cola bottle full of whiskey in there. That's not it's not to, it's so not to upset the ladies. You'll see him sip it all afternoon. He'll step up for a while, fill it back up. Why is he sitting with the colored folks? Always does. He likes them better than, than us, I reckon. Lives by himself way down near the country line. He got himself a colored woman and all sets of mixed churn. Show you some of them if we see him. He don't look like trash, said Dill. Oh, he's not. He owns one side of the riverbank down there. He's from real old family to boot. Why'd he do that? Eh, just his way, said Jim. They said They say he'd never got over his wedding. He's supposed to marry one of them. You know, the Spencer ladies, I think. They're gonna have a huge wedding. But they didn't. After the rehearsal, the bride went upstairs and blew her head off. Shotgun pulled the trigger with her towels. Do they ever know why? Nope, said Jim. Never, never ever knew quite why, but Mr. Delphus, he said it was because she found out about his colored woman. 
She reckoned he could keep her and get married, too. He's been sort of a drunk ever since. You know, though, he's real good to those children. Jim, I asked, what's a mixed child? Half, half white, half colored? You've seen him scout. You know those red kinky-headed ones that deliver for the drugstore? He's half white. They're real sad. Sad? How come? They don't belong nowhere. Colored folks won't have them because they're half white. White folks won't have them because they're colored. So they're in between. They don't belong nowhere. But Mr. Dalfus now said he shipped two of them up north. They don't mind it up north. Yonder's Yonder's one of them. Small boy, clutching a Negro's hand, walked towards us. He looked all Negro to me. He was rich as chocolate, flaring nostrils, and beautiful teeth. Sometimes he would skip happily, and the Negro woman would tug at his hand to make him stop. Jim passed until they passed us. That's one of the little ones, he said. How can you tell, said, said Dill. He looked black to me. You can't sometimes, unless you know who they are. He's half Raymond, all right. But how can you tell? I asked. I told you, Scout, you just have to know who they are. Well, how do you know if we ain't Negroes? Uncle Jack Finch says we don't know. He says he can trace as far back as the Finches. We ain't, but for all we know, for all he knows, we might have come straight out of Ethiopia during the Old Testament. Well, if we came out during the Old Testament, that wasn't too long ago. That's what I thought, said Jim. But around here, you have to have a drop of an ego blood. That's all it takes for you to be black. Hey, look! Some invisible signal had made the lunchers on the square rise and scatter bits of newspaper, cellophane, and wrapping paper. Children came with their mothers, babies cradled on hips, as men in sweat-stained hats collected their families and herded them through the courthouse doors. In the far corner of the square, the Negroes and Mr. Delphus Raymond stood up, dusted off his breeches. There were a few women and children among them. They seemed to dispel the holiday mood. They waited patiently at the doors behind the white families. Let's go in, said Jill. No, we better wait till they get in. Atticus might not like it if he sees us, said Jim. The Makeup County Courthouse was faintly reminiscent of Arlington in one respect concrete pillars supporting its south roof too heavy for their light burden. The pillars were all that remained standing when the original courthouse burned in 1865. Another courthouse was built around it. It's better to say built in spite of them. But for the south porch, Maycomb County Courthouse was early Victorian, presenting an unoffensive vista when seen from the north. On the other side, however, Greek revival columns clashed with the big 19th century clock housing rusty, unreliable instrument, a view indicating people determined to preserve every physical strap of the past.
to reach the courtroom on the second floor. One passed the sundry, sunless county cubby holes, and the tax assessor's tax office, county clerk, county solicitor, circuit clerk, judge of probate lived in the dim light hutches, smelled of decaying wrecked brooks, mingled in old damp cement and stale urine. It was still necessary to turn the lights on in the daytime. There was always a film of dust on the rough floorboards. The inhabitants of these offices were creatures of their environment. They, they, uh, the little gray-faced men seemed untouched by the wind or sun. We knew there was a crowd. We hadn't bargained for the multitudes on the first floor hallway. We got, I got separated from Jim and Dill, but I made my way to the, towards the hall by the staircase. Jim, knowing Jim, he would wait. For, he would come to me eventually. I found myself in the middle of Idler's Club and made myself as unobtrusive as possible. There was a group of white shirt, khaki trousers, unsuspended uh, old men who had spent their lives doing nothing and passed their twilight days doing the same on pine benches under live oaks in the square. Attentive critics of the courthouse business, Atticus said they knew as much law as the Chief Justice from long years of observation. Normally, they were the court's only spectators, but today seemed resentful of the, un of the interruption of their comfortable routine. When they spoke, their voices sounded casualty important conversation was about my father. He thinks he knows what he's doing, one said. Oh, now, I wouldn't say that, said another. Atticus Finch, deep reader, mighty deep reader. He reads all night. That's all he does, the club snickered. Let me tell you something now, Billy, third one said. You know that court appointed him to defend that nigger? Yeah, Atticus aims to defend him. That's what I don't like about it. This was news that was putting a different light on things. Atticus had to, whether he wanted to or not. I thought it was odd that he hadn't said anything about to us about it. We could have used it many times in defending him and ourselves. He had to. That's why he was doing it. Quelled fewer fights and less fussing. But did... Did that explain the town's attitude? The court could have court could appointed Atticus to defend him. Atticus aimed to defend him. That's what they didn't like about it. It was confusing. The Negroes, having waited for the white people to go upstairs, come in. Whoa now just a minute, a club member said a club member holding up his walking stick. Don't just don't start up them steps yet a while. Club began its stiff jointed climb, ran into Jill and me on the way up looking for me. They squeezed past, and Jim called, Scout, come on, there's ain't a seat left. We'll have to stand up. Look at, look at there now, he said, irritable, as the black people surged upstairs. The old men ahead of them would, would take most of the standing room. We were in luck, and it was my fault, Jim informed me. We stood miserably by the wall. 
Can't you all get in? Reverend Sykes was looking down at us, black hat in hand. Hey, Reverend, said Jim. Nah, Scout messed us up. Well, let's see what we can do. Reverend Sykes edged his way upstairs. In a few minutes, he was back. There's not a seat downstairs. You reckon me all be all right if y'all came up to the balcony with me? Gosh, yes, said Jim. Happily, we sped ahead of Mr. Reverend Sykes up the courtyard steps. There, we went to a covered staircase and waited by the door. Reverend Sykes came through, puffing behind us, steered us gently through the black people in the balcony. Four Negroes rose and gave us their front row seats. The courtyard balcony ran three walls of the courtyard like a second-story veranda, and from, from it we could see everything. The jury sat to the left under the long windows. Sunburnt, lanky, they seemed to all be farmers. This was natural. Townsfolk rarely sat on juries. They were either struck or excused. One or two of them vaguely looked like dressed-up Cunninghams. At this stage, they sat up straight and alert. The circuit solicitor and another man, Atticus, Tom Robinson sat at the tables with their backs to us. There was a brown book and some yellow tables on the solicitor's brown book and some yellow tablets on the solicitor's table. Atticus's was bare. Just inside the railing, divided the spectators from the court, the witnesses sat on cowhide bottom chairs. Their backs were to us. Judge Taylor was on the bench. Looking, at, looking like a sleepy old shark. His pilot fish brightened rapidly just below in front of him. Judge Taylor looked like most judges I had ever seen. Amiable, white-haired, ruddy, slightly ruddy-faced. He was a man who ran the court with an alarming informality. Sometimes he popped his feet up often cleaned his fingernails with his pocket knife. In long equity hearings, especially after dinner, he gave the impression of dozing, an, imp an impression dispelled forever when a lawyer once deliberately pushed a pile of books to the floor in a desperate effort to wake him up. Without opening his eyes, Judge Taylor said, Mr. Whitley, do that again? It'll cost you a hundred dollars. He was a man who learned in the who was learned in the law, although he seemed to take his job casually. In reality, he kept a firm grip on any proceedings that came before him. Only once was Judge Taylor ever seen at a dead standstill in open court, and the Cunninghams stopped him. Old Sarah, their stamping. Their stamping grounds was populated by two separate and apart in the beginning, but unfortunately bearing the same name. The Cunninghams married the Cottinghams until the spelling of their names was academic. Academic till the Cunningham disputed at Cottingham over land titles and took it to the law. During a controversy of this character, James Cunningham testified that his mother spelled it Cunningham 
on the deeds. She was really a cartoon hands. She was uncertain. She was an uncertain speller, and seldom a reader, and was given to looking far away sometimes when she sat on the front gallery in the evening. After nine hours of listening to the eccentricities of old Sam's inhabitants, Judge Taylor threw the case out of court. He said he, when asked upon the grounds, Judge Taylor says, "Champers." He hoped to God the litigants were satisfied by each having their by each having had their public say. They were. They was all they had wanted in the first place. Judge Taylor had one interesting habit. He permitted smoking in the courtroom, but did not indulge himself. Sometimes. If he was, if it was, if one was lucky, one had the privilege of watching him put a long, dry cigar in his mouth and munch on his lip. Bit by bit, on the dead cigar, it would disappear and reappear some hours later as a flat, slick mess, in essence extracted by mingling with Judge Taylor's digestive juices. I once asked, I once asked Atticus how Mr. Taylor. Mrs. Taylor stood to kiss him. Atticus said he didn't think they kissed much. The witness stand was right in front of the judge, and when we got to our seats, Mr. Heck Taylor was already on. you to see what was brought into this town, this small southern Alabama town for this court case. They had it, everybody from across the river, everybody came. They want to see basically a show. If you were to compare this to anything, I would compare it to O.J. Simpson. Everybody wanted to be in the courthouse. Everybody wanted to see. Everybody wanted to see what the verdict was going to be. So, um, so I'm stopping just at chapter 13. It's only like a 30-minute chapter. And then next time we'll, we'll start with 17 and see how far I can get into the actual case. So... That's it for tonight. A little short read.